As we turn to Psalm 90, let me pray. Our Father in heaven, as we reflect on these challenging and frightening days, we pray that you would help us to gain a heart of wisdom. Teach us to number our days rightly, that we would turn to you for help and for hope. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Well, the question I want to begin with this morning is this. What do you say to God in a crisis? What do you say to God in a crisis? There's no doubt we're in a crisis, both nationally and globally. Not just a health crisis, but increasingly a a looming social welfare, social economic crisis. COVID-19's a global crisis on multiple fronts, and as we'll see, a personal crisis. So then, what do you say to God in a crisis? Now, perhaps some of you tuning in today wouldn't necessarily think of saying anything to God. Perhaps you're not sure he's even there. Maybe you've been invited to to listen in by a Christian friend or relative, and God for you is just a kind of vague background belief, no real content, certainly no relevance. Maybe you left God back in primary school, not really for the grown-ups. Certainly, at a national level, that seems to be the approach our politicians are taking. It seems we still don't do God in public discourse. So unlike crises and wars in previous generations, there aren't many national appeals to pray for God's help. But if if that is your approach, Psalm 90 is inviting us to consider whether our Creator might actually be the first person to speak to, the most important person to address, because he's the only one ultimately who has the power and authority to do something about human mortality. It's not just a national and global crisis, though. It is personal. And for those for whom the virus has come close to home, those who've stared our mortality in the face as symptoms appear in ourselves or our loved ones. Or maybe you have found yourselves crying out to God. But what do you say in a crisis? Perhaps some are tempted to say to God, well, it's things like COVID-19 which is precisely why I don't believe in you or why I don't like you. After all, if God is really in control, if you're really good and loving, well, how can something like this disease be happening? How can there be a good, sovereign God in a world that's full of death and tragedy? Surely just more proof that there's no loving, higher power. Well, if you're tempted to think like that, Psalm 90 has something profound and direct to say to you. You see, there is a reason why a good, loving, sovereign God would allow something as awful as COVID-19. There is actually an answer to that complaint. And while we may find it challenging to hear, Psalm 90 wants us to face it squarely, honestly. But what about for those of us who are believers For us as a church family, as we grapple with our fears and our uncertainties in these challenging days, what should we pray in this crisis? 
Well, Psalm 90 is a great place for us to go. It's, I'm not just saying that because Psalms generally are a good place to go to, to, for help, to learn to pray. But particularly Psalm 90 and its sister psalm, Psalm 91, which we're looking at tonight in the 6.30 service, these two psalms, they're particularly helpful for knowing what to pray in a time of crisis. Why do I say that? Well, because Psalm 90 opens book four of the psalms. This whole book four is about where to turn for hope in crisis. You see, the Psalms in the Bible, they're they're actually carefully arranged. They're arranged in a five-book anthology which tells a story. The Psalms are a kind of meditation on the history of God's people and especially their king. And Psalm 90 comes hot on the heels of the crisis of book three, the gloom of book three which considers the biggest crisis in Israel's national history, the exile. And it was a huge crisis. It was the time when this people who'd been so well set up in their nation, in Jerusalem with their temple, their government, their king, their land, their prosperity, suddenly had it all stripped away. That crisis was the moment when a powerful, unstoppable enemy far more brutal and unstoppable than COVID-19, came sweeping in. King Nebuchadnezzar besieged the city, burnt the temple, and dragged people off to Babylon. In fact, if you do have a Bible there, you can look up at Psalm 89, just above Psalm 90, and verse 40 says exactly that. Just have a look. Verse 40, you've breached all his walls. You've laid his strongholds in ruins. Or verse 45, you've cut short the days of his youth. You've covered him with shame. Verse 46, how long, O Lord, will you hide yourself forever? It was a national crisis. Everything they knew, all their strength and security as a nation, their wealth, their government, their living standards, they were all in tatters. Many had died. All were homeless. Life as they knew it had been utterly turned upside down. So then, where do you turn in a crisis? What do you say to God in a crisis when you face an enemy far beyond our might? Circumstances far harder, far more terrifying than anything we expected or experienced before. Well, book four of the Psalms gives the answer. Book four tells us where to turn for hope, for comfort, for security in times of trouble. And the answer begins right there in verse one of Psalm 90. Lord, you. Lord, you have been our dwelling place in all generations. Before the mountains were brought forth or ever you had formed the earth and the world, from everlasting to everlasting, you are God. You see, there is one place of stability. There is one refuge that doesn't wobble in the storms. You, God, are an everlasting home. That's our first point. A solid, unshakable refuge. And what a comfort those words must have been to those homeless exiles, reeling from their world being turned upside down. 
what a comfort those words can be for us. Reeling from the COVID crisis and the difficult dynamics of lockdown, the Lord is our real refuge, our permanent home. I was asking at the church prayer meeting last week, how is your home life, honestly? Because of course, as Christians, we're not immune to the difficulties and the challenges that come from this kind of much more concentrated dose of home life than we've ever had before. We don't have to pretend it's all rosy, whether it's teenagers and students trying to cope with kind of 24-7 parental exposure or vice versa, whether it's flatmates living in close quarters where previously there was no real friendship, whether it's those feeling acute loneliness from living solo, or those feeling marital tensions being kind of cranked up by this pressure cooker period, whether it's those struggling to juggle parenting young children with work in a confined space, or others battling self-control in how we use the internet, or TV, or food, or words, or time. Our home lives right now are not easy. They're far from ideal, and it's not going to change quickly. But just as God's people back in 6th century Babylon had to lift their eyes from their refugee shantytown onto their solid, lasting home in the Lord, well, so our living God says to us this morning, lift your eyes to me. Remember where your real home is. And notice in Psalm 90, our home's not just something to look forward to in the future. This has struck me. It's not just for them when the exile ends and they go back to the land. It's not just for us when lockdown finally ends and we all come out blinking and hairy into whatever coffee shops still exist. No, the refuge is available right now in the living God. That's our first point, verses 1 and 2. You, God or an everlasting home. And the end of the psalm will apply it more deeply for us. But before we move on, I do just want us to notice the time scale that this psalm is opening with. Just look at who the author is. That's the heading in capitals right at the start there. It's part of the original text, and it tells us a prayer of Moses, the man of God. You see, all the way back then to Moses at the start of the nation, the founding of Israel, even back then, even in the crises they faced back then, like like a plague which came after the golden calf or wandering homeless through the desert, even then the believer could pray this in a crisis. Lord, you've been our dwelling place, a refuge in the storms. From Abraham's sojournings, from Moses's wanderings to the exile crisis when they no doubt prayed this psalm with fervor and to 21st century Edinburgh today under COVID-19. God has always been the only secure dwelling place, our real home. Verse 2, before the mountains were brought forth or ever you'd formed the earth and the world from everlasting to everlasting, you are God. See, the Creator sits above it all, before it all, outside it all. Our lives are in His sovereign hands. Every day of our lives is written in His book. 
He predates not just this nation and its economy, but the entire globe and its topography before the mountains. For him, as verse 4 puts it, a thousand years are but, but as a few hours yesterday. This is the God who has been and always will be a home for his people. And actually, in lots of ways, people dwelling with God is what the whole Bible story is actually about. See, originally, back in Genesis 1 and 2, God God made human beings to dwell with him, to share his rest. The everlasting God was to be a permanent home for his human creatures, at rest in a good world that he made. Which begs the question, as we turn to point two, what went wrong? Because you don't need to tune into the daily briefings, you don't need to track the global death graphs to realise that that we are not at rest. We are not thriving and dwelling forever with the everlasting God. We've always been aging, dying slowly. Right now, we're dying rapidly, globally. What's gone wrong? Well, this is where the psalm starts to give us some sobering and stark perspective on life. Just look with me at verses 3 to 6. Verse 3, you return man to dust and say, return, O children of man. Verse 5, you sweep them away as with a flood. They're like a dream, like grass that's renewed in the morning. In the morning it flourishes and is renewed. In the evening it fades and withers. This is our second point. We humans are fragile and fleeting that point doesn't need any proof or persuasion at the moment, does it? The evidence is all around us. The picture here is like grass in the hot Middle Eastern sun, fresh and green in the morning, faded, perished by the evening. Here one day, gone tomorrow. Those who witnessed the exile crisis saw that personally, lives being swept away in an instant. Those at the front line of COVID care are seeing this personally, some of them in our own church family. The speed, the, the severity of the illness when it takes home, it is sh- when it takes hold, it is shocking. I think there, there have been times where preaching on Psalm 90 would all sound a bit unnecessarily gloomy, a bit too morbid. But those times have passed. More than ever, we just have to admit, Psalm 90 is telling it how it is. It's exactly right. Human mortality, of course, is not new, but we can't postpone the thought anymore. We can't ignore the reality anymore. That's what's new. Psalm 90 tells it exactly how it is, and we need to listen. We all turn to dust, swept away like a flood, gone like a dream, withered like grass in a desert. And the contrast with verse 2 is so stark, isn't it? God is from everlasting to everlasting. He was there for Moses to pray to, take refuge in. He was there for the exiles to take refuge in. He's here with us today to take refuge in. He'll be there long after our lives in this world are gone. 
He's from everlasting to everlasting. But we are so fragile. At which point we've got to address the question, why? Why is it that human life is so fleeting? If we were made to dwell with God, the everlasting God, how can we now be so fragile? Why is it that a disease like COVID-19 can sweep away hundreds of thousands of people? Why is this happening? Now, of course, to the atheist or materialist, there's an extent to which the why question is not really a question at all. I mean, there's a biological explanation. The coronavirus is infecting cells in the respiratory system that's causing serious lung difficulties, and not enough oxygen is getting to vital organs. That's why it's happening, and there's no bigger explanation than that. No point looking for any meaning beyond random mutations of chemicals. But the Bible says there is a bigger explanation of what's going on, something that goes beyond the mechanics of it to the meaning, the reasons. And here the psalm has its most sobering, and if you're not a Christian, it may be the most surprising message for us. This is our third point. You see, the Bible in general, and this psalm in particular, explains the reason why we humans are so fragile and our life is so fleeting is because of God's wrath at our sin. Or to put it another way, we were not originally created to die young. We were not originally created to die at all. And I realize that may be an unfamiliar or strange idea if you're not used to the Bible, but it does make sense of human experience. It's why death causes such awful pain and anguish and grief and fear and anger. Death is not right. It's not just the circle of life. It's not just natural processes of cells and genes It's not how things should be. It's not how things were originally made to be. We're not made to die, and yet die we do. So, what's going on? Well, notice in verses 3 to 6, it's not that the universe somehow slipped out of the, the Creator's control. It's not like a good God set up the cosmos really well, and it's all careered out of control, and he's doing his best, but his hands are tied. No, Verse 3, you return man to dust. Verse 5, you sweep them away as with a flood. One of the most painful lessons of the exile crisis for Israel was that God hadn't lost control of international history, but was using international history in judgment, judging Israel for their rebellion and sin. It's the most painful lesson of Genesis 3. Death is not an accidental spin-off. It's not a foreign power that caught God off guard. No, death is God's curse in Genesis 3. Those words we hear at so many funerals, you are dust, to dust you shall return. Those are God's words originally. God's judicial verdict on humanity. 
But, but why? Why would a good sovereign God do this? Why would a loving God who's in control of things cut human life short? Why would he sweep humans away in death when he made them for life? Well, this is our most sobering point. Verses 7 to 10, because of God's wrath at our sin. Human life is fragile because of God's wrath at our sin. You see, the missing element in that complaint that a good God would never allow a death toll like this. Well, the missing element is that we fail to consider whether a good God might actually be opposed to us, might actually be angry. Not angry like a grumpy toddler who hasn't had enough sleep, not capricious or unreasonably angry, but rightly, righteously indignant at humanity, utterly opposed to what we human beings are doing in his world, to his world, to each other, to him. Now, don't get me wrong here. I'm absolutely not saying that a person who suffers serious COVID-19 symptoms or any other terminal or chronic illness is, is kind of being particularly singled out as more guilty than the next person. Jesus himself said we cannot draw a direct connection like that in a particular case. But on a wider scale, on a macro scale, it's clear that from Genesis 3 onwards, death and disease reigns in this world because we are all guilty. We're not innocent by God's perfect standards. Not one of us is right, not one righteous in his sight. So whether it comes in the coming weeks and months or slowly after years, God's verdict is, return, O children of Adam. You return man to dust. That is, people die because people sin. I'm going to die because I'm a sinner. And so as we look around a world where death is everywhere, all at once, we should be sobered. It should wake us up. It should cause us to wise up. A massive flashing warning light. Things are not right between humanity and our creator. Look at how verse 7 puts it. We are brought to an end by your anger. By your wrath, we are dismayed. Look at how verse 9 puts it. For all our days pass away under your wrath. We bring our ears to an end like a sigh. But the tragedy is, verse 11, most of the time we completely ignore the evidence. Verse 11, who considers the power of your anger and your wrath according to the fear of you? Answer, hardly anyone. Usually most of us are too busy with being productive or getting stuff or experiencing more things, too busy to stop and think about humanity's death toll. Even now, as God puts the reality right in front of our faces, even now, how many are oblivious to the fact that divine displeasure might lie behind human mortality, that our Creator might not, in fact, be happy with us. Verse 11, who considers the power of your anger and your wrath according to the fear of you? 
You see, this is the wisdom Psalm 90 wants us to guide, wants to guide us into. We are rightly shocked by this crisis. We are understandably afraid. But the wisdom literature in the Bible reminds us that the fear of God is the beginning of wisdom. That seeing this brevity and fragility of human life should sober us, should wise us up. As Ecclesiastes puts it, the house of mourning is the place of wisdom. As we see the effect of God's righteous anger, we should fear the Lord. We should find ourselves asking, what did we do to deserve this? And the Bible's answer to that is sin, rejecting God, the God who made us, misusing his creation, mistreating his creatures, other people bearing his image, rejecting his rule over us. Of course, some do that really politely and privately, some aggressively and openly. Some just say, God's not my thing, I'm not really religious. But whether we flaunt our rejection or hide it, God sees the whole lot. Verse 8, you've set our iniquities before you, our secret sins in the light of your presence. The good loving God sees it all and he's too good to ignore it. Too loving to let it carry on like this forever. Too good not to do something. And so in righteous indignation, in settled, proportionate wrath, the original life giver becomes the judicial life taker. He declares over all humans, whether sooner or later, return to dust, O children of Adam. At which point, I think one of the reactions that comes back from all of that, uh, for for those who aren't Christians or even in the back of our mind, I guess, as believers, one of the reactions is, isn't that a bit harsh? I mean, yeah, I know I'm not always the kindest with my words. I realize I don't always treat people as well as I'd like to be treated, but I'm not that bad. Surely I don't deserve death. But of course, it all depends what standard we use. And most of us use a carefully calibrated moral standard that just about rules us on side whilst enabling us to look down at others. It's just proud, self-righteous hypocrisy. We all do it. I do it. But the reality is when a holy God of all perfection looks on our world and on our lives, he sees horrors. When God the creator looks on the way the world's resources are burnt through by a wealthy few while others starve and struggle, he's indignant. When the God of justice looks upon domestic violence or abuse, whether physical or verbal, he's indignant. When the God of purity looks upon sexual exploitation of many, especially vulnerable women, often in the pornography industry, funded and fueled by the secret shame of so many looking at their screens in lockdown, he's indignant. When the God of truth listens to lie after lie after lie being spoken by every single person on the planet, he's indignant. When the God who made us and gave us life watches us ignore him and assert that we know better about what's right and wrong. He's righteously indignant. Psalm 90 tells us that if we think our sin's not serious, 
We need to wise up. Verse 11. Who considers the power of your anger? Teach us to number our days that we may gain a heart of wisdom. Or in other words, teach us, Lord, to face up to reality. Teach us to recognize your judgment before it's too late. Because, despite that hugely sobering wake-up call, Psalm 90 actually offers hope. There is good news in this psalm. Because a wise perspective on life doesn't just recognize that we are fragile because of our sin, but appeals to God for compassion. Just look at verse 13, an appeal to the one who can actually help. Verse 13, return, O Lord, how long have pity on your servants? Moses had to pray that prayer when a plague of judgment ripped through the nation after the golden calf. Lord, have compassion. We may deserve death, but have compassion. The exiles had to pray it. We deserve death, but have compassion. And it's exactly the prayer we should be praying at the moment in the UK, in Scotland, across the world. Not because we have some national covenant as a nation with God like Israel did under the Mosaic law. It's not that this disease is a particular punishment on a particular nation for its crimes. It's a global phenomenon. But remember, Psalm 90 verse 3 took us all the way back to Genesis 3, to the original verdict on humanity. This crisis is just the latest, starkest reminder. And so a Christian, we Christians are not people who think we're better than anyone else. We're those who recognize we are not good, not right by God's standards, and need to appeal to him for compassion. That's the place of hope. That's the everlasting shelter in the storms. And of course, the wonderful news we've just seen at Easter is that when we turn to God for compassion, we can be sure the answer is yes. Jesus took our place on the cross so that we can be forgiven. Not that all our problems in life go away, not that we become invulnerable to COVID-19. We'll think about that tonight in Psalm 91. But we do have solid hope beyond the grave, a life beyond death, an everlasting home that starts now and continues into eternity. Which means, if you haven't yet put your trust in the Lord Jesus Christ as your saviour, there really is no time like the present. Only he can provide a home, safety, through the valley of the shadow of death. And finally, as I close, if you are a believer, if you have turned to God for compassion, well, we should join Moses in these three wonderful prayers in verses 14 to 17. Each of them are hugely relevant in the current crisis. I'll be very brief with them. Verse 14, we should appeal to God for satisfaction in his love. You see, however bad your living situation, whether those refugees in a shantytown or us struggling in lockdown, remember our real lasting home is the Lord and his love. There is no isolation, no loneliness so deep that it can separate us from the love of God. And so let's pray for ourselves and each other, particularly those we're worried about. Satisfy us in the morning with your steadfast love 
that we may rejoice and be glad all our days. Let's pray like the Apostle Paul that we learn the secret of contentment in all circumstances. Then verse 15, make us glad for as many days as you've afflicted us. This is a prayer looking forward, looking forward to a day with hope that this affliction will not be permanent. It won't last forever. It's an appeal to God in his kindness to bring happier days to come. And while we don't know what that will look like in this life, again, the resurrection of Jesus makes it certain that we will have an eternal weight of glory to come, an imperishable resurrection body. And so finally, verses 16 and 17, while we wait for a world without pain, without mourning, without anguish, or we can pray that we would be productive in a way that lasts, eternally productive. It's such a striking way for the psalm to end. It surprised me. See, God is our everlasting home, and you might expect us just to bunker down, just to hold on till he comes back and gets us. But a wise perspective on life realizes that our days here are numbered. The clock is ticking, and the loving Christian response is, as we saw in 1 Corinthians 15, verse 58, to spend our lives in service of others, to do the work of the Lord, that is to share the wonderful hope that the Lord Jesus brings, to make every effort in prayer, in love, in conversations, to help people hear the news of Psalm 90. So let me close in prayer with those last two verses. Our Father in heaven, our everlasting refuge, we pray that you would let your work be shown to your servants and your glorious power to their children. Let the favor of the Lord our God be upon us and establish the work of our hands upon us. As you, build our, as you build your church, yes, establish the work of our hands. As one of our global partners said last week, God is still building his church. Amen.